Good morning. Welcome to Palm Vistas, Palm Vistas Bible 45, A Light to the Nations. Al's been taking us through much of the theology of missions in the previous three weeks, and today we'll be switching gears and looking at missions movements throughout history. This will be a 10,000-foot overview of the first 1,600 years of missions, so we're going to have to move. We'll be looking at trends based on the expansion of the gospel throughout the known world. We'll unfortunately have to skip over a lot of amazing history and people in the interest of time. But next week, we'll actually slow down and only cover 400 years and 45 minutes. So as we move quickly through today's lesson, I want you to keep in mind God's heart for the nations as we observe the way he works with and moves people groups. God directs rulers' hearts as a river. And I want us to remember Paul's words to the Philippians. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to affect my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Those were Paul's words while he was in prison, essentially awaiting death. Let's remember that as we move through history. Ralph Winters was a missionary to the Mayas in Guatemala, professor of missions at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, and founder of the U.S. Center for World Missions, a cooperative center focusing on people groups still lacking a culturally relevant church. Winters breaks A.D. history into five overarching periods of roughly 400 years each. We don't have the overview right now, but I'll make sure you get that later because it helps to see the, the periods. But essentially, the periods are from Pentecost to the year 400, where to the Romans. 400 to 800, the barbarians. 800 to 1200, the Vikings. 1200 to 1600, Arabia and the Crusades. And then 1600 to present, ends of the earth or modern missions. In many ways, the first 1600 years were periods of missions through persecution. Watch for patterns as we fly through history, considering how our sovereign God was at work not reacting to, but actually guiding history. So let's start out with the Romans. We're familiar with them because of Acts and a lot of the New Testament history, but the early church was under the Pax Romana, or Roman peace, which simply meant, be peaceful or we kill you. The Roman Empire was one of the largest the world had ever known covering hundreds of smaller, weaker kingdoms, most with their own languages. But because of the Romans, Greek became a universal language, kind of the language of trade throughout the empire. And that was from England to Palestine at that time. 
The Romans also spent centuries building infrastructure and empire, especially roads and long-distance communication means, kind of a Roman Pony Express, that they could communicate from all reaches of the empire. And that enabled them to manage, manage kingdoms, manage all of those they had conquered. These perfect conditions made it possible for Christianity to literally conquer the Roman Empire in 200 years. Christianity was open to all. It wasn't a faith that required any sort of membership in a people group or social strata level. Paul in Galatians tells his readers, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, and there is neither Greek nor Jew, neither slave nor free. There's no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. The Gentiles didn't have to become Jews to become Christians or any other sort of ritual, which a lot of the religions they were used to required. The church grew up by mere presence in communities and the Holy Spirit's guidance. However, in terms of going to all the nations, early missionary endeavors were rarely options, but more a means of survival. Apart from Paul and a few other groups we read about in Acts, we're aware of very few actually choosing to go for the purpose of the gospel, but more of taking the gospel with them as they fled persecution. We're familiar with the Jews and the early church and the persecution of Christians in Jerusalem, spilling them out into the Roman Empire. But as the church grew, so did Roman persecution. Throughout the empire over the next 250 years, it increased. We're familiar with Nero's 64 AD famously bloody killing of the Christians in Rome, mounting them on posts, burning them at the stake. But for two and a half centuries, sporadic attacks continued throughout the empire. In 300 AD, Emperor Diocletian had a persecution throughout the empire that commanded all of the Roman Empire to execute Christians that simply wouldn't recant. This was 300 years after Nero. So Christians began to flee the empire itself, outside of the borders, once again, carrying the gospel with them. Arian Christians, an early heresy that we'll touch on in a minute, fled north and were responsible for converting many Goths living in the area of modern Germany. According to Winter, early Christians of the Roman Empire, as are many Christians today, were only rarely both willing and able to take conscious practical steps to fulfill the Great Commission. In view of the amazing results in these early decades and centuries, we're all the more impressed at the innate power of the gospel itself. The province of Galatia in Asia Minor was so named because it was settled by the Galotai, or Celts, from northwestern Europe. Their northern homelands in modern-day Scotland were actually never conquered by the Romans, who built a wall in order to keep these northern Celtic barbarians in place, similar as the Chinese attempted to do with the Mongols. Paul's Galatians may have been Jews in Galatia, but certainly incorporated 
the local Celts who really settled the region and were the majority there. Historians believe that the movement and trade from Galatia to their northern homelands was the reason that the gospel penetrated so quickly into the Celtic regions of Europe. Constantine was the successor of Emperor Diocletian. In 312, Constantine declared himself a Christian. Historians still debate as to his reasoning for doing so, but his mother in Asia, Asia Minor, was a Christian, and his father, as co-regent under the Romans in Gaul and Britain, refused to carry out Diocletian's persecution orders of Christians. Still, whether or not Constantine became a Christian, the empire was at a tipping point. Christianity had completely supersaturated the Roman Empire, either despite or because of the persecutions that spread them. And in less than three centuries, after the church was born, the Roman Empire was a Christian empire. In 375 AD is when Christianity was declared the national, the empire's religion. However, even following conversion of the empire, Roman Christians made few intention, intentional efforts towards the Great Commission, especially to the barbarians of the north, those that we mentioned that they simply built a wall in to keep in place. Those Goths and Visigoths that began to invade Rome in, in 410 AD. So we're moving to the barbarian period, 400 to 800. The Roman infrastructure did mean that all roads led to Rome, which was the case for the barbarian invaders. They simply followed the Roman roads and it made their invasions all the easier and led to the Western Empire's downfall. One of the great gospel stories of this time though is Ulfilius, whose parents were actually captured by the Goths of modern day Germany. After growing up amongst the Goths, at age 30, Ulfilius was sent as an emissary to the Roman emperor and was consecrated in 341 as bishop to the Gothic Christians. So Rome actually sent him back to evangelize those who had captured his parents and he became a missionary to his captors. In his missionary efforts, Ulfilius spent seven years creating an alphabet for the previously illiterate Goths. So this missionary identified that they couldn't even read scripture. And he created an alphabet for them, basically making them illiterate people. And all of this for the purpose of translating the Bible into the language so that he might share Christ with them. It's reported Ophelius translated the entire Bible from Greek into the Gothic language that he created. Well, the written language that he created. Except for the Book of Kings because of its warlike nature, and he didn't want to encourage the Goths in their warlike tendencies. As an important note, Ulfilius had accepted an Arian form of Christianity, which we'll still touch on in a moment, that he carried to the Goths and to the Visigoths. He was certainly the principal agent of their conversion, a fact of great significance in the later history of the church. But what happened next, historians call irony. We use words like providence or sovereignty. As a result of gospel-focused individuals like Ulfilius, 
the barbarians who were now literate could communicate throughout the kingdom. And they consumed the Roman Christian Empire. Winters puts it, we confront the ominous phenomenon of a partially Christianized barbarian horde being emboldened through communication and enabled to pour in upon a complacent, officially Christian empire that had failed to effectively reach out to them with the gospel. Due to a general appreciation of Christianity, though, the Goths and Visigoths not only preserved manuscripts and places of worship as they invaded, but deeply assimilated and embraced the Christian faith all the more. Four separate groups, not denominations, developed in Rome itself. The Arians, the heresy that I've been talking about, holding that the Son of God was created by the Father and was therefore neither co-eternal with the Father nor co-substantial. The Athanasians, which were really counter-Arianism, affirming the Trinity in which all members of the Godhead are considered uncreated, co-eternal, and of the same substance. The Celts, flowing out of Northern England and Ireland, remember Paul's connection through the Galatian church to these people. And the Benedictines, a small but significant local sect. Now, all four of these were now cohabitating in Rome itself because of the invasions. Then we move into what I like referring to as the barbarian missionary endeavors. That just, I mean, it sounds good, barbarian missions. I think that should be the name of a missions agency. Um, Once Europe was resettled following the invasions, the church began its first truly organized mission push throughout Europe. Celtic monks began evangelizing from the north, moving south, using Scottish islands like Iona and other sanctuaries as their training and sending facilities for hundreds of missionaries to pour into the kingdoms. Benedictine monks from Rome evangelized from the south, moving north. By 596, Rome had been sending missionaries, and one of its first, St. Augustine, headed north, with, it has to be noted, great tribulation. He crossed the path of much more daring and widely traveled Irish missionaries, such as Colmbian, who had worked their way south, practically to the doorstep of Rome. Sorry, you know, as I was reading, as I was studying this, I, I, was, I was weeping. He'd worked his way south to the doorstep of Rome and was already further from his birthplace in Ireland than Augustine had even planned on ever going. This is from Paul's connection through the Galatians. The gospel moved north and then was carried south by missionaries. Together, the Celts and the Benedicts built over 1,000 missionary compounds throughout Europe and evangelized the region in depth. These missionary compounds focused on teaching the gospel, but also improving the lives of the communities they were in. They trained in biblical but also basic literacy. They disseminated Roman technology that was acquired in the invasions, such as aqueducts, tanning and dyeing of leather, weaving, ironworking, bridge building, record keeping, and more. So the very missions became 
the movement forward for all of Europe. The majority of our current knowledge in these periods is because of the missionary libraries that they put together, which were works of both Christian as well as pagan authors of that time. We have to note, though, that syncretism was often one of the issues that they dealt with, where pagan traditions were melded with the Christian traditions. And this was throughout Europe. But the cross-pollination, again, we see God's hand, the cross-pollination of the doctrine from the Celts coming from the north and the Roman Benedictines from the south resulted in an affirmation of what was a more healthy, solid doctrine. We still see this type of syncretism today. Um, I had the opportunity in 96 to travel through the Altiplano in northern Chile, uh, southern Peru, and uh, up into the mountains there. Villages that were rarely visited by anyone. Every single one had a Catholic church, though. But a priest only got there once a year to do communion for the village. So what would happen is during the rest of the year, the villagers would go back to some of their pagan roots and actually perform sacrifices on the altars for good harvest or for a light winter. So this isn't something just in history. It's something that still goes on today, and there's a lot of areas desperately in need of the gospel. In 1768, Charlemagne, king of the Franks, became the first, quote, holy Roman emperor. He worked to rebuild Europe and brought back the roads and communication systems in such a way that it even rivaled what the Romans had constructed. Europe prospered under his educational and theological reforms, all in light of the Bible, as well as relying for the first time on many of the writings of early fathers, those of the Roman period that had worked on theology and the presentation of uh, the gospel. The first attempt at public education was instituted uh, at the advice of, again, those Celtic missionaries, such as Alcyon, who, whose projects required thousands of literate Christians from Britain and Ireland to man schools throughout the continent. Irish and British missionary teachers were actually brought to Rome itself in order to teach Latin because the barbarians had decimated it to such an extent that Latin was no longer taught in Rome. As advisor to Charlemagne, Alcyon stood against the emperor's policy of forcing pagans to either be baptized or beheaded. So either you get dunked or you lose your head. He wrote, faith is a free act of the will, not a forced act. We must appeal to the conscience and not compel through violence. You can force people to be baptized, but you can never force them to truly believe. His arguments prevailed and Charlemagne abolished the death penalty for paganism in 797. Under Charlemagne, the Germanic tribes were fervently evangelized. However, once again, evangelization didn't necessarily go outside the borders. And they didn't look north to the Scandinavian people, which brings us to the Viking period, 800 to 1200. The Scandinavians or Vikings had not been evangelized once again. And while the barbarian tribal invaders of Rome were rough forest people, 
for the most part, and were nominally Aryan Christians. The Vikings, by contrast, were neither civilized nor Christian. There was another difference. They were men of the sea. That meant that key island sanctuaries, such as Iona and others, where missionary training took place, fell victim to their raids. Mission centers were repeatedly sacked and their occupants slaughtered and or sold off as slaves to Middle Europe. According to Winters, Christians of Charlemagne's empire would have fared much better had the Vikings had at least an appreciation of the Christian faith that the early barbarians did when they overran Rome, the very opposite of the Visigoths and the Goths, who spread, spared the churches. The Vikings were drawn to centers of Christian devotion and took special delight at burning sanctuaries, putting human life to the sword, and selling monks into slavery. It should be noted, however, that under Charlemagne's reign, these centers had grown in wealth with ornate riches and were easy targets for the Vikings to acquire their plunder. During Charlemagne's reign, ancient manuscripts had been carefully collected and unfortunately were easily accessible for Viking destruction. Only because so many copies had been made and spread throughout the kingdom did any records survive. Ireland and Scotland, some of the greatest senders of early missions, became major hubs of Viking raids along the European coastlines and deep into the continent using the very same Roman roads as well as the missionary compounds for their bases of raids. But still, the gospel conquers. The very monks sold into slavery and young women forced to marry their captors taught the gospel throughout the empire as they were transported back to Scandinavia and anywhere the invaders moved through Europe often converting entire clans, but also many paying with their lives. The Vikings spread throughout Europe, and in a matter of 250 years, they became a Christian people because of the very people they were conquering. They returned home and spread Christianity throughout the Norse Isles, Scandinavia, east into Russia, and well into the West New Lands. Once again, the evaders became the evangelizers. I'm sorry. In 995, Norway, Norwegian missionaries took the gospel to Iceland. In 1000, Iceland's parliament accepted Christianity. And that same year, Leif Erikson took the gospel to Greenland. In 1015 AD, Russia and Norway officially accepted Christianity and integrated as part of Christian Europe. By 1280, the Bible was available in 22 separate languages because of the spread. 1210, the Franciscan order established, was established and would become a prominent part of the colonization of the Americas. Throughout this period, there were many stories of sacrifice. In 1008, Bruno of Korfeldt was sent from Poland to evangelize the Prussian people. He and 18 companions were beheaded or hung on the same day, immediately after their arrival. As Europe rebuilt both physically and socially, 
a great schism separated the church in 1054 AD into Western and Eastern empires. The Crusades were an unfortunate unification of these two empires, though following it, the schism was never repaired. So we're going to jump into the Crusades, 1200 to 1600. Never before had any nation launched such a sustained campaign into foreign territory, as did Europe in the tragedy of the Crusades. In many ways, a carryover of the Viking spirit into the Christian church. All major crusades were carried out by descendants of Viking invaders and with much of the same destruction and bloody desolation. The result was an unprecedented amount of death for both Europeans and Muslim people. It provided Islam in the world an image of brutality and a militant Christianity, alienating them even to today. The Crusaders held Jerusalem for a hundred years and then ultimately surrendered it to the Ottoman sultans after a century of bloodshed. But during this time, there was flourishing that went on in Europe. Cathedrals grew as centers of worship and the gospel was presented in new ways through stained glass and paintings for the illiterate to be able to understand it. Universities developed with a focus on theological education. Friars became the new missionary force, emerging in Bologna in 1220 and quickly spreading across England, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, and followed all trade routes. Unlike monasteries and cathedrals, which were centers of learning as well as commerce, the friars' purpose was strictly preaching salvation to the lost. Vows of poverty and reliance on charity forced them to settle in city centers where alms were plentiful to support their work and they had a much greater audience. Their message of salvation was intended for all and they even began preaching in the open air anytime they showed up in a new city, awaiting a patron or a benefactor to sponsor a home or a place of worship. Not part of the social hierarchy, the friars were simply the poor and acceptable to all, especially the fellow poor. However, with the rise of the urban class, the friars' message was that of a devout life could be dedicated not only in monasteries, but also in the world of commerce. So even the rich were accepting the friars' message at that time. From 1253 to 1255, William Rubric journeyed throughout the Mongol Empire, taking the gospel further than it had ever gone. In 1266, Mongol leader Kublai Khan, after having heard the gospel, this is the grandson of Genghis Khan, sent Marco Polo's father and uncle back to Europe with a specific request to the Pope to send 100 Christian missionaries to evangelize his people. Only two responded, and one died before they ever made it to Mongol territory. The bubonic plague began to sweep throughout Europe in 1346. Forty years of death wiped out half of the European population, and the friars were decimated 
because they and other spiritual leaders were the ones that were willing to remain behind in the cities. Caring for the sick and burying those who died and caring for the families as they lost people. So they, of course, didn't survive. As Europe emerged from the plague, it gave dawn to one of the greatest renaissance seen to date. And a lot of this was because of the invention of the printing press. We know that Luther's, Luther's 99 Theses in 1517 was spread throughout Europe because of the invention of the press. And the Reformation separated the Catholic Church from the Protestant Church. But you can listen to Cal Beisner's teachings, Heroes of the Reformation, on that one. And that's at Pombus's website. So the dawn of the 1600s, as we step into that new century, Protestants had won on the political front, essentially. Immediately beginning to deal with further separation within the Protestant church. Segmentation, divisions, And the Great Commission was not a significant part of their plans for two centuries. But meanwhile, the Roman Catholics were expanding throughout the seven seas. But we're going to touch on that next week. For now, as we consider history and marvel at Paul's words to the Philippians from his jail cell that we opened with, his words really could be echoed by countless other Christians during this period families and lives that were lost because of or for the sake of the gospel. But even more, I marvel at God whose sovereign hand moved the message of the gospel during all of this bloodshed, during conquests, and captors becoming the very missionaries that God used. So, from Paul's words, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me Consider those millions who died in the spread of the gospel. What has happened to us has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my, our imprisonment is for Christ. What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So as a member of Palm Vista, as a missionary with United World Mission, as we as a family prepare for a summer of equipping Latins who are going throughout the world, of training missionaries to work sacrificially and to look at things through God's providential hand instead of assuming The faith I grew up with is the faith that these people need to know. The culture I grew up with informs the faith. But taking it back to the gospel, and not what I know, but what God says his word is, as they teach and train, um, that helps me. It helps me to understand that what I grew up in in the church here uh, isn't necessarily what a missionary from Costa Rica to Africa or to Asia needs. What he needs is the gospel. That's what changed these cultures. That's what changed the invaders 
whether it's the Goths, the Visigoths, the Vikings. That's what brought about Christian, Christianity's movement throughout the world. And God used these people as well as those who willingly said, I'm going to respond to the Great Commission and go. So, this week I'm going to, and Al's going to help me make sure that the, the presentation that we couldn't get on the board is up. It helps in seeing some of the movements. But I want to take a minute and just close in prayer as we consider where we as individuals go with the gospel. Lord, thank you for your sovereign hand over history. Father, it's amazing what you've done with those who had no interest in the gospel and through those who were willing to lay down their lives for the gospel. And Lord, we thank you that it's that same gospel that we're carrying today. Not North American, not even Middle Eastern, but Lord, your word that penetrates all cultures, that supersaturates even those who are resistant to it. And Lord, we pray that we would consciously take that into our places of work. Lord, that that would inform how we look at others, Father. And that would be how you look at others. Lord, help us. Help us to follow you, to trust you. And thank you for your amazing work, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you.